Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Millennial in the Middle. It's midnight, and I just had an awesome day. I think a lot of you know if you follow uh, me personally on Instagram or Facebook, or if you follow Millennial in the Middle uh, Instagram and Facebook pages, you've probably seen what I was able to do tonight. The reason I'm still in a suit and tie and wearing my credentials still is I had the opportunity to volunteer at the vice presidential debate here in Salt Lake City tonight. Uh, It was the first ever presidential or national debate uh, that was held in Utah, and it was pretty cool to be a part of that. And then I really lucked out. Not only was I able to volunteer, but of the volunteers, there were only a few that were able to be lucky enough to be in the debate hall. So I was in the debate hall tonight in... Uh, We'll quote Hamilton. I was in the room where it happened tonight, and uh, it was so cool to be in a place where I knew that the whole world really was tuning into 100 million Americans tuning in uh, just in the country, and that doesn't count people tuning in from all over the globe to see what went down tonight. And, you know, for as disappointed and kind of bummed out and just feeling feeling just kind of empty after last week's first presidential debate. I really have the opposite feeling tonight. I feel invigorated. I'm recording this just a couple hours later, and uh, I thought that was a great debate. It was a lot of, obviously it was fun to be there, but I think just the content, what went down, how it went down, I'm really excited to jump into it tonight. Uh, So first off, let's kind of start with the story. A lot of you have reached out to me and asked, Connor, what was it like? What was the experience? How did that happen? Well, let me tell you. First off, uh, just like everything else in the year 2020, logistics and how things would normally work were totally different than ever. So typically you would have had a jam-packed debate hall. Uh, It's been planned to be at the University of Utah, this debate for over a year now. And, you know, this is a big deal to have a debate here. You would have expected students and people, you know, prominent in the state to be filling uh, Kingsbury Hall, which it was held at right on U's campus. And instead, uh, it was less than 100 people that were there. Uh, I would have had no chance of getting a ticket to go as just a spectator with how tight uh, it was as far as how many people could be there. But I kind of was able to sneak in, uh, sneak it, sneak my way in there through being a volunteer and kind of getting lucky. So that was pretty awesome. Uh, but the first thing that happened with that is everyone there had to be tested for COVID. Uh, so on Monday, I was tested for COVID. I got a less than 12-hour turnaround that I tested negative. Yippee. And uh, that would have really stunk if I would have been ready for all this and then tested positive and been asymptomatic or something. That would have really ticked me off. So I'm glad that didn't happen. But uh, test negative. I get a wristband. Uh, The next day, I had to go back to basically prove that I could be in the perimeter because I had tested negative for coronavirus. And uh, so, yeah, I was up at the U on Monday to get tested, back at the U on Tuesday to get my uh, wristband as well as the credentials to be be able to show that you're able to be in the secure perimeter as well as in the debate hall itself. And then we show up tonight. And the feeling was pretty cool. Uh, By the way, like I said, I was a volunteer that was inside and here was my job. Uh, 
I was told, okay, your job since you're here basically is to serve as like an usher, but rather than leading people to your seats, you get to be the mask police. Now, I wasn't too excited about that. I'm not going to lie. Like, oh, great. I got to be that guy walking around this door to say, hey, sir, mask above your nose. I can see some nostrils there. Let's get that mask up a little higher. Uh, So they're like, look, everyone that's here tonight has agreed to the rules. That mask cannot come off. And if it does, you have to ask them uh, to put the mask up. And if there's any problem, they will be kindly asked to leave and escorted out. Uh, I didn't luckily have to be the one to be escorted out, but basically told if there was any problem, there's a cop, uh, you know, there's some uh, police officers here in the building, make sure to reach out to them. You know, they're telling me things like, don't touch them. Uh, you know, if there is anything unruly that happens, uh, you kind of got to be on watch. And so all of a sudden that changed my perspective of this debate and what I was looking at a little bit more, but uh, luckily... People that were in there for that debate tonight, they knew the rules. They were going to live by the rules. And I think they knew that if anything went wrong, uh, that wasn't going to fly. So didn't have to tell anyone to lift their mask above the nostrils. I only had one chance where I saw one lady. She was probably about 85 sitting with her husband in the handicap section. And she was having a conversation with her husband. And I saw that mask go down below the nose, kind of to her upper lip. And, uh, Hopefully no one's hearing this because I'm going to tell you I shirked my duties there. I'm like, ah, we're going to let her, we're going to let her just bring that down for just a second. She brought it back up, didn't have to do anything. So anyway, that was my job. Uh, and I didn't even have a seat because every seat was accounted for and lined up. I stood uh, basically in one of the aisles like an usher and so was on my feet for a few hours. It was fine. I was just happy to be in the room where it happens, right? So What happened before the debate, to me, is almost what left the biggest impression. Kind of the coolest thing, what caught me off guard and surprised me the most about this experience. I've thought a lot about this, and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, First off, so 30 minutes before the debate, debate's supposed to start at 7 o'clock. At 6.30, everyone is seated. And they have the debate commission basically come up and uh, start to, you know, kind of give, thank all the sponsors and thanks for being here and kind of reach out to a few special guests and things like that. And then they started to go through the rules and the rules were very strict. It was like, look, they came out and said, this event is not about you. This event is for the hundred million Americans that are tuning in from home. So... This isn't about you. You can't make noises. No laughing, no cheering, no hissing, no booing, nothing like that. If you do that and you're warned and you don't stop it, you're out. It's a privilege to be here, not a right. And second was the mask thing. that You've got to keep your mask on the whole time. And if it comes off, you're out. So pretty stern in these rules. And you're told that the only two times that you're allowed really to make a noise during this time in the debate is when the candidates come out. And I would say shake hands, but it's 2020. Of course, we don't shake hands. We give each other a little, I mean, heck, we can't even do an elbow bump anymore. They're doing a head nod from across the room with plexiglass in front. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, uh, you know, when they come out, give them that applause. And then at the very end to give them their applause uh, as well. So 
Here's what was cool. They go through all these announcements, and then at about five minutes to the hour, the moderator comes out. Susan Page from USA Today. I'll talk a little bit more about her in just a minute. Uh, I thought she did a fantastic job. I'll tell you why a little later. But she comes on and basically, in just a likable way, kind of reiterates the rules to the crowd. And in a very human moment, she looks at all of us and says, and if you've got any good karma, send a little my way. I feel like I may need it. And I just thought that was a very real moment. I cannot imagine the stress and the pressure and the anxiety that goes into moderating an event like this. You know, obviously the candidates are feeling it, but for the moderator, moderator, that's such an important responsibility. And especially seeing all, you know, what happened with Chris Wallace the week before, those are not shoes that I think anyone would be envious of. And she stepped in that role. And then here's the part that really stood out to me. So you've got the debate hall, you've got the stage, you've got the moderator's chair, and the moderator, by the way, is sitting with her back to the audience, looking at a camera that's actually shooting out from like backstage. Uh, She's speaking directly into that. And then the two candidates that both have their seats kind of angled, talking to, you know, facing the crowd. Well, there's the immediate floor right under where the debate is held where there was about 20 seats this were this was uh for family members special guests a couple dignitaries things like that that were on the floor and then right behind them are the cameras right so you've got camera left camera right and that middle camera you can see the red light as it appears on that camera of which one they're speaking to obviously that's the shot that zoomed in right on the candidate as they're speaking And then what you don't see on TV is behind the cameras, there are six different, I would almost explain them as cubicles, that are separated by curtains. And what it is, is basically a little station for the six six main networks that are all broadcasting the debate. CNN, Fox News, ABC, NBC, they're all lined up. And they have maybe no more than the length of the desk I'm sitting at, five or six feet, and just a piece of curtain, a piece of cloth that's separating the two, or that's separating these six stations. And that's where you then have an anchor, a host sitting, and the camera there. So you're looking at the host, like if you watched Fox News, for example, um, you saw when they came live on the debate, behind them is the debate stage. And you're wondering where they're sitting. Well, they're sitting right directly behind the main cameras, speaking to the Fox News uh, channel at that point, which by the way, if you were watching Fox News tonight, you saw me right after the debate. Thanks for those that reached out. Little shout out. Anyway, it's kind of cool. I'll talk about that more in a minute. But uh, you see this moment where they all have the stage behind them. And so here's what happens. 6.30, we all go through the announcements. The moderator comes out and then they take their seat. Moderator takes their seat at about 6.57, which is then followed by two to three minutes of dead silence. You could hear a pin drop. It was so quiet. And then they warned us that this was going to happen, but it's still like you couldn't prep yourself for this. At seven o'clock on the dot, what happens? All six of those networks go live at the same time. Hey, we're here, Kingsbury Hall, Salt Lake City, Utah, to host the first vice presidential debate. Thanks for being here. I'm Brett Baer, whoever it is, right? 
Will all of those six networks go live simultaneously and they're all talking at the same time? So it goes from complete silence to complete madness, complete chaos. Now, you wonder like, well, how do you not hear over them? Well, they've got these fancy microphones, obviously, that are just picking up on their voices. The real skill has to be that all six of these people are talking at the same exact time over each other. And that anchor has to basically stay alert and stay present. So they're not getting distracted by these other, uh, you know, anchors or TV people next to them. And so it was the strangest feeling in the audience because you went from this moment of silence to then six voices speaking loudly at the same time. And to me, it created this total metaphor for the world we live in today. That all of a sudden, simultaneously, six voices speaking over each other and honestly sitting there, they're 20 feet away from you. Like you can hear every word they're saying. You could kind of choose to tune in to whatever voice you wanted to listen to. You know, like when you've got a group and you're in a group of people and a lot of people are talking, but if you kind of look at that one person and try to follow them, you can hear what they're saying. Even though other people are talking, you tune them out. And to me, it's like, That's exactly what's happening in our political world right now. There's so many voices. There's loud voices. And what's so hard to find is silence, is quiet. And then this is the moment that stuck out to me. So from seven o'clock on the dot to, they actually had it dialed down to the second, to 7.03.30, Those individual networks are talking. And then at 7.03.30, the moderator comes on, welcomes you to the the debate, brings on the candidates, and it started. And the craziest sensation again. That feeling of silence immediately came back when the moderator started speaking. It went from six loud, angry voices, not necessarily angry voices, but six loud voices, to all of a sudden just the moderator and the two debaters. Now, here's why this was such a cool experience for me that I'd never had like anything before in watching this type of thing. We all watch the debate from home and we're maybe with other people and we're talking or we're giving our commentary to each other. Or we've got our phones out and we're checking Twitter or we're seeing Instagram or what's the latest meme that got posted or, oh, what are people saying? And you're like filled with all this commentary while the debate's on and you're kind of halfway tuned into the debate and halfway tuned into whatever else is going on in your life. Maybe you're texting your buddies about, oh, what what are they doing? Or I can't believe she said that. I can't believe he just did that. Whatever it might be. That's what we're used to. But for me tonight, guess what? My phone had to be off. I couldn't be on my phone. I had to be silent. There was no one to talk to. There was no one. I was by myself. So it's not like I'm going to give little shoulder taps or little winks at parts I like. There was no laughing. It suddenly was this moment of just total quiet for an hour and a half. And I listened to the debate. Now, I talk a lot about music on this podcast because I love music and especially oldies. We've talked about this before. 
The lyric that went through my mind a few times tonight actually is from one of my favorite favorite bands of all time, Simon and Garfunkel. I love Simon and Garfunkel, and it's Paul Simon in the later years. Uh, a lot of that's thanks to my grandpa Pat, uh, my great grandpa, or my, my great grandpa Pat. He was great, but my grandpa Pat, uh, he taught me to love Simon and Garfunkel, particularly Paul Simon. And I thought of the line, "The sound of silence." And no one dared disturb the sound of silence. We all know that song. Hello, darkness, my old friend, right? And to me, it was this awesome lesson of, I think we as society, we've gotten so accustomed to the noise that that's what we rely on. And I think particularly when it comes to politics, but really any topic in life, we learn to, well, what do other people think? What are other people saying? What are their thoughts? I've talked about how with politics, we often read commentary on commentary. Here's what someone thinks about what someone said about what that person did. And you're not really ever making a decision for yourself. I think particularly the media and the world, the political climate we're in today, they want to make the decisions for you. And I think what was so cool tonight is none of that happened for me. I was able to just sit there and listen. And now as I record this episode, uh, I don't think I told you, I did, it's past midnight, this happened earlier. I haven't gone back and rewatched the debate. I have not seen a single pundit. I haven't gotten on Twitter. I haven't even responded to all the messages on my phone from my friends or those of you that are following, giving me your thoughts on the debate. I'm recording this episode tonight just telling you, here's what I thought. Here were my feelings. Here were my impressions. Here were my perspective. And again, I always do this with the mindset that I don't have anything to convince you of. I'm not trying to talk you into anything. This isn't a debate like we just watched. But I want to make this point. We all have the right to think for ourselves. We all have the right to take in like what we just saw tonight, to break it down and go, well, what do I think about that? And I think that's something that can never be taken away from us. Give yourself more credit than you might think. If you say, oh, I don't know much about politics. I don't follow all the ins and outs. So I just, I follow this person or what they say. No, go figure it out yourself. And all you've got to do to figure it out, you don't have to become some scholar. Just listen. If you listen to tonight's debate, what did you think personally? How did certain arguments make you feel? How did both the candidates Maybe change the way you think or reinforce a thought that you've had before. And I think the more of that we can get in life of embracing the silence, embracing that moment to just be able to take it in without all the other garbage, without all the other crap or controversy or divisiveness that might come along with it, to think for yourself and just see where you end up. Honestly, I know this sounds a little weird, but that was my takeaway tonight. I enjoyed the sound of silence. And I think all of us in life should do more to embrace that silence, to not run from it, to not be scared of it, but to be okay with that 
And I think the more we embrace the silence in our lives, the better people we become. So, all right, there's my motivational speech, I guess. I don't know why I got kind of sappy as I did this, right? But I really think that's a good takeaway. Now let's dive into my actual reaction to the debate. I've just jotted some notes down. This literally, I've been home for an hour. So uh, again, maybe what I'm about to tell you is something that you've heard all the pundits talk about or all the commentary on. Maybe I'm totally off base. I don't know, but let's make a run for it. So first off, Let's talk optics. Whenever it comes to debates, uh, you know, in, la- in last week's debate where we responded to the first presidential debate, we talked about the first ever televised debate, 1960, JFK versus Richard Nixon, and the importance of how things looked and felt and what they felt like. Well, here was my feel of the optics actually being there. Uh, and by the way, like I didn't watch it on TV. I have heard from people that there was a fly that was on Pence's head. I couldn't see that from where I was. So obviously I missed that optic, but here's what I felt. I felt looking at those three people on the stage tonight, that Mike Pence was in charge, that Mike Pence spoke from that position of power, that he was the most calm, that he was the most in charge. And maybe there's some different things to chalk that up to one he is the vice president. The other person's the challenger and the other's the moderator, right? But he's the vice president. I think he carried that mantle with him today of that position. Two, maybe this is a sexist thing. Let's be real. This was the first time ever that we have had a presidential or vice presidential debate where on the stage, there were more women than men. Think about it. There were two women on the stage and one man. And whether this is inherent bias or just whatever it might be, like I had the impression tonight that Mike Pence was in charge. And I think what was interesting is, uh, you know, we'll talk a little about more about the moderator in a bit, but uh, Mike Pence to me seemed like he was the man that was kind of running the show. Um, And with that, I think Mike Pence's tone tonight was everything that we lacked in debate one. A tone of calmness, of power, of being in charge. Maybe it's a little sleepy. Maybe it's a little boring. Maybe each time after you get to say, well, thank you, Susan. I appreciate the opportunity to respond to that question. Like maybe that drives you crazy, that smoothness. But all the decorum that was lost in debate one, I feel like we refound or rediscovered tonight. Um, And... As far as the moderator goes, uh, oh, well, I guess I need to say this about uh, Kamala Harris first, Um, or I said that wrong, Kamala Harris. For those of you that have been saying it wrong, it's Kamala. The way to think of it is it's like mama-la, because that's what her stepkids call her, Kamala Harris. Anyways, uh, I didn't like her snippiness at Pence the very first time she did it. Now, I know that Pence went over time a lot, and frankly, it got annoying. That's not a good thing as a debater ever. When you're going over time every single time and not listening when the moderator is saying, okay, you're done, okay, you're done, okay, you're done. It's like, dude, knock it off. But my issue was Harris didn't let that just naturally kind of grow, right? The very first time that Mike Pence 
kind of tried to interrupt her a little bit or made a little comment to what she said, she just snapped at him and gave him a, Mr. Vice President, I am speaking with a whole latitude. And frankly, to me, it was like, wow, that came out of left field. Like you decided that's how you were going to respond to that. And the minute you had the opportunity, you went for it. To me, I think that could have been delivered a lot more powerfully if it was like the first time you were kind of bugged. The second time it was like, okay, that's enough. And then the third time, like, stop it. I think the whole crowd could have went with you on that, but it came a little too strong too soon. And I think to me, Pence's going overtime and being a little annoying created being a wash between Harris uh, being a little snooty or snobby even in the way she responded to that. Now, as far as the moderator goes, I thought Susan Page did a very good job. And here's why I say that. Uh, There were no doubt a lot of questions tonight that were just dodged. Questions that were asked that then weren't answered to or fully responded to. And Susan Page didn't go out and hold their feet to the coals and say, you know, answer that. I asked you a question and you didn't ask. Are you going to pack the courts? Are you going to uh, have a national mask mandate? Are you going to support the election uh, whether you win or not? She could have had several opportunities to do that. But the way I related that is to a referee of like a basketball game that comes out at the beginning of the game and the referee set the tone that, look, you're either going to call all the ticky-tack fouls the entire game and stay consistent, and if you do that to both teams, things are fine, or you're going to let them play. And if you let them play, you can't call ticky-tack fouls. You just got to keep that even on both sides. And to me... She went in with the strategy that she wasn't going to involve herself. If the candidate chose not to answer the question, okay, that was your decision. If you chose to use your two minutes where I asked you about the Supreme Court with talking about foreign policy, eh, that's, that's your call, whatever, right? And I think that led to just a better debate as opposed to why it felt like Chris Wallace was debating, especially with Trump, was Wallace was trying so hard to get his questions answered where it just felt like, okay, why are we debating with you? I I feel like that was a very much, a lot better feel to that. One thing I will throw out, I think as a moderator, what we've got to have moving forward is just the ability to mute their mics. If there's no punishment for going over time, then why wouldn't you take an extra 15 seconds every time? And that's what Pence did. Penn said, well, if you're not going to stop me, you didn't stop me the first two times. So I'm going to keep rolling. I'm going to take as much time as I can here. So if you want that to actually change and want to enforce those rules, that would happen real quickly with a mute of the mic button. And the minute they get muted once, guess what? They don't want it to happen again. They'll learn. Just a thought. Now, that's optics. That's kind of the feel. That's the tone. Let's talk policy. And I want to talk about a few moments and a few topics that stood out to me as a voter and as looking at this very unbiased, looking at this from more of a middle approach. Here's what stood out to me. First off, I loved that policy was actually debated. Um, I think, like I said, why I was so disappointed with last week's debate is the fact that I really do feel the platforms and the ideas for where our direction is, where our direction as a country is headed, are so different between the two parties right now. But that wasn't clearly articulated last week. That wasn't fully communicated. And I feel like that was communicated a lot more 
this week. Um, a lot more tonight, I guess I should say. The first argument. Now, you know where I stand on this when it comes to coronavirus. Coronavirus was front and center tonight. It didn't take any time to get into it. It was the first question. And the first question was to Harris of how would you do things differently if you win come January after inauguration? And I have said before in my reaction to the DNC episode a while back now that I haven't viewed coronavirus as a voting issue. Why? Because hindsight is 2020. No pun intended. But there's no way to say here that, well, if we would have done this or if it was handled this way, then XYZ would have happened. No, like I've made the argument that it's just as ludicrous to say 200,000 people are dead. Trump was president. That's his fault. It's just as ludicrous to say that as it is to say Donald Trump reacted swiftly and closed down travel to China. And because of that, hundreds of thousands of lives were saved. We just don't know. So to me, I just throw that right off the ballot. But obviously that hasn't been the case. We've wanted to talk about this. And frankly, I felt Pence won the coronavirus argument today. I actually think this kind of backfired. And I think the argument that hadn't really been articulated yet that Pence did very well was first off, Kamala Harris didn't answer the question of, will there be a national mask mandate? Will there be more government shutdowns? Are you going to shut down businesses? She didn't really answer that. and But she said, we have a plan. And Pence came out and said, well, as I look at your plan, it looks very similar to ours. And frankly, as I look at what the Democratic Party is saying of what they would do for coronavirus... Both parties are saying the same thing. Now, I think it gets talked about in a different way. I think this whole like mask, do I wear to wear a mask or not to wear a mask has become a part of this debate. But that's not the point. Like both parties are talking about, yeah, we need a vaccine. We need to be more efficient in our testing. We need to figure out how to not screw over the economy in the meanwhile or in the meantime, right? Like both of these parties are doing that. And I liked Trump just calling out, all that I'm seeing is you just maybe saying, hey, we're going to do the same thing as you a little more extreme. And where the differences do lie in policy is what people said way back when. I think the argument to make that when Donald Trump shut down travel to China and everyone labeled it as xenophobic and they labeled that as racist, including Joe Biden, including uh, Nancy Pelosi, to come out and say, hey, we made that swift action then and we think that really helped. You can't argue with that. You can't say it didn't. You can't say it didn't. But if we look at what's going on right now, I really just struggle as a voter to say that, yeah, I believe the Trump administration has handled coronavirus poorly. Ergo, I'm going to vote for the Democratic Party. I don't buy that argument. I never have. I never will. And I think for me tonight, that argument was just kind of closed book. And if we're going to close the book, honestly, I give that argument to Pence. Uh, but the, the argument, by the way, that Harris made tonight, that the handling of coronavirus is the biggest presidential failure in the history of our country. Come on. And to specifically relate that to this economic depression that we're now in, that's similar to 1929 and the Great Depression. Come on. Our economy was soaring, was better than ever before coronavirus hit. We can't forget that and now just blame our economy on that when let's face it it was because we had a government mandated shutdown of our country for months 
Okay. I feel pretty strongly about that. I don't know why I got so fired up there. Hey, this is how I felt. Watch the debate tonight. All right. Here's my best moment of the night for Harris. And then I'm going to give you my best moment of the night for Pence. And I'm going to wrap up. My best, uh, where I think Kamala Harris really shined tonight is in talking about uh, race. And here was my concern for Pence going into the debate. Like, I thought where he was vulnerable, and if I was in Harris's camp giving them advice, here's where I thought there was a major opportunity to strike a fatal blow. And it's the fact that, I mean, honestly, as a white man in 2020, trying to talk about race with a very educated, smart, powerful, well-spoken woman of color in 2020, that's a debate that honestly, like you just can't win. You can't argue the racial unrest in our country that's going on right now. Uh, we've had in this podcast, the episode with Kira Nelson in episode 11, uh, and in the episode with Alan Michael Boston in episode 21, we talk about race and the problem that that presents and in our country today. And for me, I feel like when it comes to civil rights, this is where Harris shines. And where I think that this was real opportunity missed for the Democratic Party is race was not mentioned until an hour and 12 minutes into that debate. An hour and 12 minutes. I remember I looked at my clock the minute race came up and I was like, wow, a lot of people maybe still aren't watching. And I think a lot of people decide who they think is going to win the night in that first half hour. And if I'm her, I would have tried to bring that into the conversation a whole lot earlier. Um, and ultimately, you know, when she talks about George Floyd, when she talks about the civil unrest, that those are arguments that the Trump administration obviously hasn't handled great. Now, I know there's arguments about, uh, I, I know as I say that my conservative friends are going to give the same argument Pence gave. Like, I get it. But when it comes to racial sensitivity in 2020, I just think that Harris missed her chance tonight to make that a lot more of the focus and could have won a lot bigger. And let's be real, here's where she had her best moments in the primary debates. And interestingly enough, these were her best moments in the primary debates against Joe Biden, prosecuting Joe Biden when it came to segregation and, you know, kind of calling him a racist, which is kind of interesting that all of a sudden now they're uh, running together. But that to me is when she hit her stride in the primary debate. I would love to see more of that tonight, especially coming against Pence. I think she could have landed a big blow there. There was my Harris highlight. My Pence highlight to me came when talking about the Supreme Court. It had to be done uh, when the moderator wasn't going to ask Harris straight up, are you going to pack the courts? Now, by the way, if you listen tonight and you're not fully sure what packing the courts mean, let me quickly describe that to you. There are nine Supreme Court justices. There have been since the start of the Constitution 150 years ago. And the thought is that typically when it comes to those judges that have been appointed uh, or justices that have been appointed by either a Republican or Democratic president, it's been a 5-4 Democrat-Republican uh, balance for years now. The fear now is that with if Amy Comey, Comey Barrett gets, uh, Coney Barrett, excuse me, 
gets confirmed, there will be a 6-3 advantage for conservative judges as opposed to liberal judges. And so the thought is that there could be a law passed to just expand the amount of judges that are in, or justices, excuse me, that are in the Supreme Court to higher than nine, therefore taking that majority that the conservatives have and giving that back to the liberals. Where all of a sudden, if 13, uh, say it was expanded to 13 or 15 justices and several of those were very liberal leaning in the way they got confirmed, all of a sudden that's now been switched. And so it's this argument of, do you change the rules? And Pence made it very clear that Harris refused to answer that tonight. She didn't do it. And I think he had to do that. And I think he did it well. I think he uh, kind of flipped the script a little bit there of being the prosecutor against Harris to point out that that wasn't there and to kind of shine a spotlight on that. And then I also thought how he followed that up with uh, people questioning uh, Amy Coney Barrett about her Christianity and that that was a negative thing for her on the uh, to be on the Supreme Court and have the Christian dogma uh, that was said before that line that you'll hear a lot as we continue moving forward. I think he hit the nail right on the head, and I think that was a very powerful argument that was made. Now, in closing, the last thing I want to talk about here argument-wise, I thought the highlight of this debate for me was when t- they talked about foreign policy. And why I loved this is because I told you all the way back in episode seven in the America First episode that this to me is one of the things that I feel the president has the most power over and therefore is one of the things I put the most weight in when I vote for the president. So I was really excited to hear this argument about foreign policy, but then what was awesome is to me, it was just this perfect debate about America First. Harris started And I really liked what Harris did here. When talking about foreign policy, she said, hey, let's simplify this. Let's break it down. I love when a candidate takes something really complex and breaks it down. So people listening at home, my millennials, my Gen Z that are maybe first time watching a debate, you can understand. And she says, look, when it comes to foreign policy, it's relationships. How would you treat your friends? And I loved that little idea she had there where she said, look, you've got to understand when it comes to foreign policy, who your friends are, who your adversaries are, and you've got to keep your word. You've got to be honest. You've got to have integrity. You've got to keep and maintain that relationship in place. And I mean, similar to episode 19 with Emily Northway, when we talked about what her Norwegian friends and her European friends think, that... Trump has kind of left, Europe has left a lot of their allies in the dust. She made the argument really well. And then what I thought was interesting is Pence didn't disagree with her. Pence simply displayed the difference of mentality when it comes to the two parties right now. And what was funny is I think he kind of flipped the argument of since when has Donald Trump ever cared about making friends? He doesn't. He, I mean, his whole policy was come out, America first. Uh, We're tired of losing these trade deals. We're not going to be a part of agreements that unfairly tax us or unfairly, uh, you know, put our economy in in a bad position or that put our troops in a spot where they're carrying more of the load than is equitable. And I thought this was like, I was like, man, 
that's what I'm talking about right there because there's not one right side. It's what resonates with you. Do you look at the Harris and go, no, she's right. We've got to be good to our friends. We've got to keep our word. We've got to be honest. Or do you look at Pence and he said, look, we don't really care about friends. What we care about is being effective. And here's what we've done. We shut down uh, Baghdadi here. We did this. We uh, you know, created this peace deal or whatever it might be. And we weren't worried about making friends along the way. We put America first and here was the effect that that had. I thought that was really, really a highlight to the debate. And that was like everything that was lacking in debate one was like this philosophical debate of where do you stand in foreign policy, America first, or a globalized view of the world. Lastly, Brecklin Brown gets the final question. She is a eighth grader at Springville Junior High. Now to thoughts, really cool about this. Obviously, we're in Utah. We got a lot of listeners here in Utah. I want to put out a little call here at the end of this episode. I need to get a hold of Brecklin Brown because I love what you wrote. For an eighth grader to come out and say what you said and how that question was posed, why do I want to chat with you, Brecklin Brown? Because I have a podcast I think you'll love. It's called Millennial in the Middle. And honestly, what you articulated in that eighth grade essay is what we're doing. Uh, I don't know if this is possible. I'm going to see what I can do. If any of you can reach out. I mean, I got a lot of Utah County listeners here. I'd love to have her on the show. I'd love to do a little interview with an eighth grader and talk about that. Here's what she wrote in closing. If our leaders can't get along, how are the citizens supposed to get along? Our nation's capital is setting a poor example of unity and respect. No matter who we are and what we want to stand for, we all want to be heard and we all want to be acknowledged, but no one wants to listen or understand the person on the other side of the line. Nothing is going to change until someone breaks this trend of arguments and anger. Each citizen is accountable and each citizen has their agency to not allow our country to be divided by differing opinions. Your examples could make all the difference to bring us together. How is your presidency going to unite and heal our country? Pretty awesome for an eighth grader. Kind of sounds like my intro episode of Millennial in the Middle. That's why I want to chat. Anyway, it is almost 1 a.m. My voice is hoarse. This has been a long day, but it's been a great day. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this. Um, Last thing I'll leave you with, that thought of the silence. Embrace it. Give yourself credit. You can think through these things. You can decide where you stand. You don't need me to tell you. You don't need the late night comedy guys that you watch that you get your news from. You don't need Tucker Carlson. You don't need Sean Hannity. You don't need your radio. I mean, I don't know who it is. Don't rely on other people to tell you how to think. Now, that's obviously true for politics, but it's true for life. The more we become individuals that think for ourselves, that embrace that silence and have confidence in the way we view the world. And when we view it with an open mind and an open perspective, that's when we grow. That's when we make progress. And that's when we can do some really awesome things. Until next time, 
Clowns to the left me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. See you next time. I guess maybe tonight we should have sung, Hello, darkness, my old friend. See ya. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle.